Well, there was an article at the National Public Radio's website that listed 12 common half-truths that many of us have accepted as facts. I added some other uh, half-truths from the comments part of the article. For example, it said peanuts are not really nuts. Walnuts are nuts. Pecans are nuts. Chestnuts are nuts. They're real nuts. But peanuts are not nuts. They're, they're legumes, right? They come from the same family as peas. Peanuts. So they're peas. So here's the question for you this morning. Is eating peanuts eating a vegetable? Think about that. I hope so. Now, we all know this. We all know that uh, the American buffalo is not really a buffalo. It's a bison. It's part of the uh, bovida family, which includes domestic cattle and goats. A koala bear is not a bear. It's a marsupial like a kangaroo. A palm tree is not a tree. Palm trees belong to the monocot family of flowering plants, which include grasses and grains. Swollen glands have absolutely nothing to do with glands. They have to do with lymph nodes. A mountain goat is not a goat. A mountain lion is not a lion. Pink is not exactly a color. What, what pink actually is minus green. So if you take all of the, the, the white light out and you take the green out, then you get pink. A two by four is not two by four. A starfish is not a fish. It's an echinoderm. A penny is worth more than a penny. It, may, it costs more than two cents to make a penny. Sea cucumbers, you don't want to cut up and put on your salad. Sand dollars have no monetary value. The Battle of Bunker Hill in the Revolutionary War was fought on Breed's Hill. French fries are anything but French, right? You could go on and on and on about all these half-truths that we use all the time to describe things. And there's nothing harmful or purposely deceiving about them. They're just basically misidentified uh, things which can lead you to thinking that, that uh, there's something that they aren't. But, you know, often half-truths are not so kind. Often half-truths are meant to deceive. They're half-true, but means they're whole lies. And they're meant to take us away from what's really true. So often the challenge in our lives is not just recognizing the blatant and obvious deviations from the truth, but the sneaky and shifty deviations from the truth, the, the half-truths. Black and white is clear. But often half-truths disguise them, themselves into you know, some shade of gray. And before you know it, you've fallen into biblical error because you've accepted a lie, a half-truth as truth. Well, our pastor today challenges us to be aware, to be perceptive about what is true and about what is error. If we do not stay alert and discerning, we could end up leaving the one and only truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to first, uh, excuse me, first Timothy, first Timothy chapter four, first Timothy four and follow along as I read uh, verses one to five. The scripture says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, Father, we come to you now this morning, so thankful for your word and its power, so thankful for what it will teach us today and guide and direct us through what is expressly said by the Spirit to us this morning in this passage. So open up our hearts and minds, and may we be led and fed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why do people leave the face? First, uh, they are deceived by false teaching. First, we see in our passage today that departure from the faith is not a surprise to God, but the very prediction of the Holy Spirit. The passage starts off saying that the Spirit expressly says, or the Spirit clearly says, or the Spirit specifically says, or the Spirit explicitly says. False teaching and deceivers in the church are not a surprise. Instead, we're to see them as the very tactic of the forces of evil doing their best to thwart the work of God and his plan. The latter times, as talked about here in the New Testament, doesn't necessarily mean the eschatological end times. Paul is not saying to Timothy that sometime way in the future, way out there, people will depart from the faith. One commentator defined that later times saying, the phrase later time refers to not some coming event, to the, uh, but to the sweep of time from Christ's ascension to his future return. It covers everything in between, from Paul in the early church, to Luther in the Reformation, to Wesley in the Great Awakening, and to us. These are the latter times, the last days. The great epoch of the church is the final stage of human history before the triumphal return of Jesus Christ. These words from Paul are just as relevant for our churches as they were for those days in the first century. They will continue to be valid for believers in the future last days. You know, Peter, in the very first sermon of the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, quoting the fulfillment of prophecy, calls it the last days. Hebrews 1, 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We are in the last days, as the, as the church has always been, awaiting at any moment the culmination of our age and the return of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is clearly saying that we need to be aware. Satan and his deceivers are attacking Christians, trying to get them to depart from the faith. The church and true believers have to be constantly on guard against false teaching. The war against the terrible danger of false teaching is a constant battle that we are in. First John 2.18 says, Children, in the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Jesus said in Mark 13.22, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and miracles to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Second Corinthians 11.13-15 says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles, 
And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In Acts 20.29, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, to the very church that Timothy is serving at, when he receives this letter from Paul, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Our passage says that these false teachings that subvert the truth come from deceitful spirits and are teachings inspired by demons. But you know, they don't show up wearing red costumes with horns, do they? No, false teaching usually infiltrates the church through three-piece suits and fancy dresses. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The battle is real. The enemy against the truth is at work, not just from outside the church, but inside the church as well. One commentator put it this way, despite the assault of the physical world upon our senses, we live in a spirit-saturated environment. There is not a moment when we are outside of the interplay of spirituality, for we are spirit beings. The very faculty of the, of the human will is spiritual. Whatever we choose to believe or do is founded in our spiritual nature. When Paul wrote about deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, he's not necessarily envisioning Satan worship or drug-led transcendentalist theology. There's a wide variety of ways in which Satan peddles his twisted inventions. All deceptions come from Satan's realm, but he uses many genteel ways to fashion his lies, spreading lies which are anti-God. You see, Satan uses many genteel ways to fashion his lies, causing us to create divisions in the church and for people to fall away from the truth. You know, according to Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary, there, are, there exist 43,000 Christian denominations in the world in 2012. That's up from about 500 in 1800. And the number is expected to go to 55,000 by the year 2025. Currently, Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary estimates that a new Christian denomination is formed every 10 and a half hours or 2.3 denominations a day. Folks, I have something to tell you. That is not the work of God. That is the evidence of the work of Satan and his deception leading people to abandon the one true faith and causing divisions and selfless focus in the church. You see, the challenge isn't just out there. The challenge is in here. The challenge isn't just in some other land. The challenge is right here in our churches. That's the point Paul is making, that these teachings inspired by evil come from within the church. This passage is not dealing with the philosophies of false teachers taught by the unbelieving world. It's talking about the false teachers within the church itself. Warren Risby said it comes as a shock to some people that Satan uses professed Christians in the church to accomplish his work. But Satan once used Peter 
to try to lead Jesus on the wrong path in Matthew chapter 16. And Satan used Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 to try to deceive the church at Jerusalem. So here are two quick applicational thoughts. The only rule and standard whereby we must coalesce all of our doctrine is the word of God. It's the only yardstick. It's the only criterion for the truth. All of our doctrines must come from the teaching of God's word and his word and not the musings of mankind. This one clear and decisive focus is the best safeguard against false teaching and false teachers. The Bible is our full assurance of the truth. It's the hallmark of any church that wants to be what God wants them to be. We know that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The second thought is that there are clear foundational teachings of the Bible that we are literally to die for. That we are literally to take a bullet in the head for these clear foundational fundamental teachings. We are to take persecution and ridicule for them. To stand up and be counted. And yet at the same time there are some less clear, less fundamental teachings in which we can allow one another to agree to disagree. Not only within the church, but also as we work and partner together with other churches. The fundamental teachings of Christ, of salvation, of the Bible, of the Trinity, and on and on should bring unity and strength together as we stand up against false teaching and false teachers. But it's also true that our more kindly held, less clear less foundational teachings, that they should bring us unity as well as we allow differences and keeping the major things major and the minor things minor, that, that we can also be strengthened against false teaching and false teachers and not be led astray on a little thing. Strength against false teaching is both to not make a mountain out of a molehill and to not make a molehill Out of a mountain. See, Satan wants nothing more than to get our focus off of the clear teachings of God's word. And then affecting how we live out our lives. Folks, there's one clear standard for all of us. For Poland Village Baptist Church. As we stand in strength against false teaching. Against false teachers. And that's the word of God once for all delivered to the saints. Well, next, why do people leave the faith? They're deceived by false teachers. False teaching can come from even the most sincere and honest pastor or teacher. But that's not a problem for the church. See, a, a humble and teachable pastor or teacher that is submitting their teaching and preaching to God's word may at times get it wrong. But God will guide them into the tr- truth and God will gently And the church will gently understand and help direct the teacher. But look at verse 2 in your passage there in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. You see, this passage is about deliberate false teaching. Teachers who are described as insincere liars or hypocritical liars or pretentious liars whose conscience have been seared by their lies. These are truly wolves in sheep clothing. Their goal is to lead people astray. Their goal is to seduce people and to get them to depart from the faith. They're not trying to build the church. 
They're trying to divide the church and to conquer the church, to get people to follow their teaching, to get people to follow their way. See, one of the marks of a true servant of God is honesty and integrity. He practices what he preaches. One of the marks of a false servant of God is hypocrisy and deception. Not even practicing the false teaching that they teach. See, the Greek word here means duplicity. They are frauds. They might look good on the outside. Like true servants, they might sound so engaging and likable. They might, might even be able to gather a large congregation to follow them. They might even be on TV. But their teaching is not based on God's word. Therefore, their teaching is full of lies and self-made pseudo-truth. Our sole source of evaluation is the word of God. One of the things that we know from the Gospels is that Jesus hated hypocrisy. He spoke out regularly against the religious leaders of his day, calling them hypocrites. Hypocrisy in leaders in the church is intolerable to Jesus Christ. Well, the verse goes on to say that such false teachers have their conscience seared. The conscience is a human uh, capability to discern right and wrong and is connected to our will. A good conscience, once guided by faith, enabled a person to navigate life's moral issues. But a seared conscience is left scarred, unable to access truth and error, incapable of producing godly behavior. Well, there are two possible emphases from this phrase, seared conscience. One is that their conscience has been seared, becoming so insensitive to the truth that they've lost the power of moral or godly decision making. They not only tell the lies, they believe the lies. And they have their conscience has been seared, so they no longer even know that what they are speaking are lies. The word seared is also can be translated as branded. Paul may also have had the the idea here suggesting that their conscience had been branded by Satan. By teaching what was actually false, they've been branded by Satan as his possession and therefore doing his will. Romans 16, 17 through 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It is so important to realize that false teachers who are described as disguising themselves as servants of righteousness don't come to us with blinking neon lights warning us that what they're teaching is error. No, you see, they seduce, they charm, they lure, they entice, they persuade, they appear as light and truth all the while serving Satan's end and their own appetites. You see, we have this problem as humans. We like to follow other humans. There's something about us that likes to, to follow. That's not all a bad thing. Imagine if everyone was a leader, the whole world would be full of anarchy and disorder and chaos. God has designed us to be followers. However, the history of mankind has shown us that in our attempt to be good followers, we might not be as evaluative as we should be about who is leading us. We could go on and on with story after story from people from every culture around the globe who have put their trust in a spiritual leader or a political leader only to be manipulated and deceived and controlled. 
the extreme examples of these stories are, are horrific. But there's truth in this for us this morning because our first allegiance as Christians is never to another human. Our first allegiance to Christians is never to a human leader. It is always and only to God himself. Our first allegiance is never to a written creed, but always and only to the word of God itself. Many a follower of Christ has been led into error by following too closely to any one human teacher. God has called us to follow leadership, but he calls us to follow him first. God has provided leadership in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation. But he always calls us to follow him first. He's always challenging us to think, to evaluate, to measure all things by his standard, his truth, the word of God. To err is human. To evaluate is divine. The great defense against false teachers is to never stop learning. To to immerse ourselves in the truth of the scripture. And to never give too high of allegiance to another person. And for all of us teachers and leaders out there, and to one extent or another, each one of us, you and I, all of us, are teachers and leaders. Barclay, in his commentary, gave this challenge. Here's the threatening and terrible thing. God is always searching for men who will be his instruments in the world. But the terrible fact is that the forces of evil are also always looking for men to use. Here's the terrible responsibility of manhood. Men may accept the service of God or the service of the devil. Whose service will you choose? See, God's word is proclaimed through the mouth of the teacher. Satan's schemes are supported through the mouth of the teacher. The question for us is, what's coming out of our mouth? God's wisdom or man's folly? The last way that we are deceived by false teachers is that we're deceived by their false actions. Verse 3 says that these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, there was this heresy that started in the first century in Christianity called Gnosticism. It came from the mingling of Greek philosophy and Christianity. And it taught that all that was of the spirit was good. All that was of the body was bad. It eventually taught that the human Jesus was indwelt with the divine presence of Jesus becoming the Christ. That the spirit of Jesus was holy, but separate from the body of Jesus, which was evil. This became a major apostasy that eventually denied the efficacy of the cross and the reality and the importance of the resurrection. You know, it's still taught throughout our world in many differing forms that often just carries the title New Age Philosophy. See, the focus is on your spirit becoming more aware of its Christ consciousness. The body, the flesh, morality is unimportant. You can be spiritual and holy without being moral and godly. One commentator said the essence of Gnosticism was that the spirit was altogether good and matter altogether evil. Well, this can lead one down to two great errors. One is to asceticism. That is denying your body and not giving it what it wants. And the other is to libertinism. That's indulging your body and giving in to your fleshly appetites. The focus of 
First century Gnosticism was asceticism. They denied their body its earthly pleasures. So often today, in the outgrowth of Gnosticism into New Age philosophy, the focus of this heresy is on libertinism. In our passage today, these false teachers were saying that godliness was denying marriage. That that was godliness to not to get married. What they're really saying here is that denying any sexual fulfillment or relationship fulfillment. They also said that denying certain foods. Now that's godliness. Denying food. Meaning that denying any pleasure from food. That that was good. The goal was to harshly discipline the body. For the body was evil and thus we would focus more on spirit things because that was more godly. There is no truth to this teaching in the Bible. God created marriage. God created relationships. God created men and women. God created sexual fulfillment. God created food of all types to be eaten and enjoyed. There's no dualism between our soul and body in Christianity. The soul is important. And so is how we treat our bodies. Both reflect godliness when given over to following Christ. Our bodies are of such value to God that he's going to resurrect them someday into eternal glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We must remember the Orthodox fundamental Christian doctrine, which is the focus of our Christmas celebration, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, when God took on humanness, when God walked among us, when Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, his flesh, his body, was not evil or bad in any way. But yet this error of denying your body is a strong and long-lasting error. And it's easy to see why. Because the proper disciplining of our bodies, of our flesh, is an important part of a normal and proper and growing Christian life. God does not want us to live by or to live for the indulgence of our appetites of our body. But God does want us to enjoy his creation within its proper context. There's nothing wrong with marriage. It's a God-given wonderful thing. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with sex. Sex is a creation of God that's meant to be enjoyed within the biblical standards of a marriage relationship. Our bodies are to be disciplined to express itself within the biblical standard where true joy can abound. There's nothing wrong with food. All foods, vegetables and grains and fruit and meat have all been given by our God for our consumption for our enjoyment, yet within the biblical standard. Gluttony, overindulgence of food, is sin. Abusing our bodies with continual poor choices in nutrition is a sin. Abusing our bodies, addicting our bodies to any substance is a sin. Food is to be enjoyed, but within its biblical standard. The era of asceticism teaches that The way to really be godly, if you really want to be a godly person, you have to deny yourself. What God had clearly and repeatedly said was good and profitable. This error became so strong that it rose uh, this thing called monks and monasteries. One commentator describes this error saying, this kind of thing came to a head 
uh, with the monks and hermits of the 4th century. Listen to some of this. They went away and lived in the Egyptian desert, entirely cut off from men. They spent their lives mortifying the flesh. One never ate cooked food and was famous for his fleshlessness. Another uh, stood all night by a jutting crag so that it was impossible for him to sleep. Another was famous because he allowed his body to become so dirty and neglected that vermin dropped from him as he walked. Another deliberately ate salt in the midsummer and then abstained from drinking water. All because that was more godly. Now this kind of craziness, for the most part, is not going on today. At least not to this kind of extent. But still today, monks and nuns, even the Amish, are thought of and treated as extra spiritual because they deny the flesh. Folks, we can't earn points with God by denying what God has said is good and is profitable. God isn't impressed with our self-denial at the expense of disregarding what he said is good and profitable and to be enjoyed. Within its proper context and godly standard, our bodies were designed by God to enjoy. Listen. Look there at verse 4 and 5 of the scriptures. Look at that. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Look at that. Everything created by God is good. Nothing to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving and made holy by the word of God and prayer. Delightful words, freeing words, words of freedom and joy and encouragement. But isn't it awesome that, again, we come to this, one of the main points of the sermon, the evaluative standard. What's the evaluative standard of this thanksgiving, of this good? What's the evaluative standard? The word of God and prayer. How can we ne- neglect or reject what God says in his word is good? How can we be praying to God, telling him that what he's created is bad? No, folks, in Instead, we're to receive God's gifts, God's joy, with thanksgiving, evaluating it according to the word and prayer. You know, somewhere along the line, the picture of holiness became a grumpy, uptight, smileless, starched church, straight-laced, prune-faced follower of Jesus Christ. If you could do all that, you were holy. You know, it's more than past the time for a true picture of godliness to be an agreeable, calm, smile-filled, enjoyable, winsome follower of Jesus Christ. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because your delights will be God's desires. You see, is God your desire? Is it your delight in, to delight in his word? So think about this right now in your mind's eye. As you picture God, what do you picture God as? Is he a policeman on... 616, just waiting to catch you as you go around the corner too fast? Is he a harsh teacher with a ruler in his hand that's getting ready to slap your hand if you do something wrong? Is he this taskmaster? Is he a God of, no, stop, don't do that? Is he mean? Is he just looking and waiting for you to mess up? Is he a God of judgment? Or in your mind's eye, do you picture God more friendly as a guiding teacher? Sure, he corrects us when we're wrong, but he does it with the love of a parent to a child. Is he the God of yes? Is he the God of encouragement, saying, you can do it? Is he encouraging and hopeful and accepting? 
and yet always challenging us to become better, to become more godly, because He wants what's best for us? Is He a God that's forgiving and full of grace and mercy? Who longs for us to have a relationship with us more than we could ever imagine? What's your picture of God? Pastor and author Craig Goschel offers this a, a, a kind of litmus test of sorts that might shed a little light on your relationship with God. He writes, if you call me Pastor Craig, chances are you know a little about me. You know what I do. Maybe you've heard me speak. Maybe you're familiar with some of my favorite topics or my upfront personality. But your use of my title doesn't mean that you know me personally. You might just call me Craig. And I'd usually assume then that you know me better. My friends call me Craig, and we're close. But there are those who possess exclusive rights. Just a few specialized, far more intimate forms of address. These are the six beautiful small people, very dear to me, who are allowed to climb up on my lap. They rub their hands on my face and say things like, you need to shave, and you're the best, or can I have some candy? They call me Daddy. The name reveals intimacy. So he ends this thought saying, what do you call God? Your answer may be the clue to how well you know him or don't. See, two times in the New Testament it says that God's Spirit stirs within us to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is the transliterated Aramaic word for what a child calls their father. When a little child would get under the lap, we'd call their father Abba. Our children say Dada or Papa. It's an intimate word of love and dependence. But our spirit doesn't just cry out Dada and Papa, but it also cries out Father. See, putting the two together is both personal and yet keeps a proper tone of respect. The double title is both intimate and dignified. Papa, Father. Now, no one who matures continues to call their dad, Daddy, or Papa. But guess what? The intimacy remains. So here's the question. How intimate? How connected are you to your Heavenly Father? Are you just serving Him? Or is it your delight? Is it your desire? Delight yourself in the Lord. Our God has given us such great good things. He is the giver of all good things. May we not just have our trust in him. May he be our delight. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you now this morning so thankful again for your word. It is the evaluative tool of my life. It is the standard for which I long to learn and to grow in my own life. It is the standard of our church that we long to live and to grow and to mature and to, and to know and to spread. We thank you for it, that you have not left us without a clear word from you, and we thank you for that. We pray you would guard us from false teaching and false teachers. We would stay focused on your word. And Lord, that you would also help us in, in the midst of this challenge to realize that what you have created is good. And you're a God who wants us to delight in you. You're a God who wants us to desire to you. You're a God who 
who wants us to have relationship with you, to, to cry out from our spirit to you, Papa, Father, to be intimate, to be close, to love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Lord, we don't just want to trust you. We don't just want to serve you. We love you. We delight in you. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.